0: Oh, never mind. All right. So 2 Peter 1, let me pray, and then we'll jump in. Father in heaven, thank you for um, just all the ways in which you have orchestrated our lives uh, this week to get us to this uh, point in our week, that we are able to, to have the privilege of sitting underneath the Word of God and that we are able to uh, be with your people, uh, that we are able to worship together in spirit and in truth. Um, God, I pray that we would never see that uh, as an accident, uh, that we would never see that as as our own doing in in a lot of ways, um, but that we would always see it as your uh, divine hand leading and guiding us for a specific purpose. So I pray, God, that you would open our minds and our eyes and our ears um, and our hearts to understand and to behold these wonderful truths from your word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. My Bible weighs too much. It really does. It's pretty heavy. That has nothing to do with my spiritual life. So, just so... All right. so the second letter, we just finished the first letter of Peter last week, and so the second letter of Peter um, does not need much of an introduction because it is written by the same person uh, to the same people. So Peter is uh, writing to the churches in Asia Minor, um, and he is instructing them in what it looks like to be uh, a Christian, but also what does it look like to be the church in a hostile culture. So this is what Peter has been communicating to these churches and their elders. So, so there's probably about two to, to maybe five years between 1 um, Peter and 2 Peter, and it is very, very possible that Peter wrote this letter just before he is executed for his faith, which would explain the, the, the tone of urgency that you hear in 2 Peter, even as we move along in, 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 in this study. So you can see j- that just in that two to three year period between 1 Peter and 2 Peter, and, first, and, and in 1 Peter, Peter already knows like these things are coming and you need to prepare yourself for them. So you can see that, that in between those times, things have escalated quickly. And Peter even knew this. Peter, in, in, in chapter 1, verse 14, that's, that's not the text we're looking at today, but Peter knew that he would die soon. He knew that this was reality. He says this to his readers. Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, which is just a nice way of saying that I'm going to die soon. I know what's going to happen, as our Lord Jesus made clear to me. So if you remember that at the end of uh, Matthew's Gospel, where Jesus not only tells Peter to feed his sheep and to tend to his sheep, but he also says, you are going to die for your faith. And so the situation at this point in time was was heightened. It, it, things uh, against Christianity and Christians uh, were getting more tense. And so Peter knew that this was probably it for him. So instead of running and hiding to see if he can uh, buy more time for himself or, or do whatever he needs to do to make him, him and his family safe from this uh, coming persecution, Peter sits down. And he pins another letter to his readers in Asia Minor. And he's pinning this letter to tell them to remain faithful to the gospel. And so our text today, in chapter 1 as a whole, is, is Peter's final challenge to them uh, before he launches into warning them about false teachers and false prophets, specifically. So he does this in three ways today. He does this by telling them what God himself has provided for them to make their calling and election sure. So here's the three points. One is he's given them divine provision. Two, he's given them a divine desire. And three, he's given them divine diligence. So divine provision, divine desire, and divine uh, diligence. So first, divine provision. Look at verse 3. Peter writes, His divine power, speaking about God, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. So Peter begins, this is one of my favorite verses in all of the scriptures, by the way, but Peter begins his instruction with an overwhelming and awe-inspiring reality that is true of every Christian. That you, Christian, have been granted by God's divine power everything that you need that pertains to life and to godliness. Everything. The New Living Translation of the Bible puts it like this By his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living. A godly life so if that has ever been a question in your mind of how do I live a Godly life how do I live a life that is pleasing to the Lord well God has supplied you with that already you need not look far because it is already yours so we need to think th- think this through a little bit more because Peter uh, tells us that we have God's divine power so that's a that's a major announcement is that we, we possess God's power. We, it belongs to us as Christians. So how do we possess it? Well, in John chapter 14 in the Gospels in the New Testament, Jesus promises the Holy Spirit will come to his followers. So John 14, verses 15 through 16, Jesus says this to his followers. If you love me, you will keep my commandments... And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. So Jesus is saying to them, Keep My commandments. And there's not a period there. He goes on and says, And the way you will be able to keep My commandments is because I will ask the Father and he will give you a helper that will be with you forever. So, John 14, 26, Jesus says, But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So it's by the Holy Spirit, sent by the Father, where we receive God's power. The Holy Spirit is the one who empowers us to live a life worthy of the calling that we have received from God. So God calls us, and He also empowers us with His Spirit. So the Christian life is is a life uh, in which we are turning away from sin and drawing near to God. That is the Christian life. So Romans chapter 8, verse 9, Paul says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. So what this means is that the day that you are born again, to use biblical language, the day that you become a Christian, the day that you are saved, the day that you are brought out of darkness into His marvelous light, you are blessed in two different ways. One, you are saved from the wrath of God. To Romans 5.9, Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. And then the second way is that we are equipped by God to live the life we have just received. I'm just going to muscle through, so you guys muscle through with me. We're gonna, it's going to be all right. It's going to be fine. So, so this, is, this, is, this is vital and something we should never forget as Christians, that we have been saved by God's wrath and we have been equipped by God to live the life we have just received from God. So this is important for us, especially when we face temptation to sin, or, or find ourselves in a hard conversation with someone who doesn't believe what we believe? Or when we walk through suffering, how are we to understand those things? Well, it's because God has equipped us to do so. And this is what Peter is desperate to get across to his readers. So we must remember that, that we are possessors of God's divine power. And by, Pete, and by saying this, Peter is touching on the fact that the believer now lives in the already not yet reality of the kingdom of God. So if you are a Christian, you have one foot already in the kingdom of God. You are already living within that reality right now. God himself in Christ announced the kingdom arrival in Jesus' own words in Mark chapter 1 verse 15. The time is fulfilled, Jesus says. I'm here. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. But it will not yet be realized until Jesus returns at his second coming. So for now, Peter is saying to his readers, We have been granted the kingdom reality through God's divine power which means we already partake of the eternal life to come. Eternal life, you have to understand, is not just something that you're going to be granted uh, on the day that you die. You don't just become a Christian, do whatever you want, and then uh, one day you will go to heaven to live with God for all of eternity. The, the hope you have for eternity in the future is the same hope you have in this life. God has given you eternal life now. So this reminded me of the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism that we have uh, 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 said here in our Affirmation of Faith before. And I think it sums it up nicely. So I'm going to read the the entirety of the answer. It's a longer answer than we typically do. But the, the question is, Christian, what is your only hope in life and in death? That I am not my own. Christ, by His Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him. And it's here where Peter begins to criticize these false teachers. With all of that in mind, that he begins to criticize the false teachers he will later more directly address in chapter 2 and in chapter 3 of his letter because Their lives are not marked with this. The the false teachers and the false prophets that Peter is uh, is kind of speaking to indirectly, their lives are marked with moral anarchy. But those who are called by God in Christ, those who are already living the, the already not yet reality of the kingdom, their lives are marked with his glory and his goodness. And we'll live a godly life because of that. So not only does God, does, does God grant us all things that pertain to life and godliness, verse 4 tells us He also grants us His precious and very great promises. Look there with me. By which He has granted to us His, his precious and very great promises, so that through them, through these promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. One commentator said, God's promises are a faith fertilizer, an empowering tool. Because trusting in God's promises are what allow us to become partakers of this divine nature, of God's nature, and escape the world's corruption caused by human desire, caused by our own sin. So Hebrews chapter 11 in the New Testament is a great example of this. So within the halls of this chapter, we find this very idea that is modeled by these men and women of faith. Particularly in uh, Hebrews 11, verse 17, we have it spelled out for us in the life of Abraham. And we've been studying Genesis Um, uh, at the beginning of every year for the past couple of years. And we just came through Abraham's life. So we know a little bit about this. But Hebrews says this, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son. So Abraham received these same promises That Peter refers to here in verse 4. Some of them. And it it was through the receipt of these promises that Abraham acted in the way he did in offering up his son Isaac in Genesis 22. And and let me just say the only way that a man could take his uh, grown son up a mountainside, uh, knowing that his intentions are to obey the God of the universe and sacrifice him, the only way that he can do this is because he is trusting in the promise of God. So if you remember, even, uh, even in Hebrews, t- talks about Abraham did this because he, he trusted in the promises so much that he knew that if God killed his son, that he would bring him back to life. I mean, Abraham was already believing that a resurrection could occur, even when it hadn't happened yet. Abraham received these promises and he was able to act because of these promises. So Abraham's actions demonstrated his belief in God's very great and precious promises. And what are these promises? Well, for Abraham and others in the Old Testament, it was looking forward to the coming Messiah. It was looking forward to the snake crusher that was, that was going to do away with the sin of Adam. Adam for us who live within this, this new covenant that, that, that Christ has brought we are looking to the promise of the second coming of Christ that Jesus will return Hebrews 8 6 says but as it is Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he, me- he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises so what is being said here by the author of Hebrews is that the very great promises that we, have, that we have are actually better than the promises that Abraham and those in the Old Testament had. Because we have a wider revelation. We have a wider understanding of what God is doing and has done uh, throughout history. So how much more should we be able to live a life of faith now that we have received the better promises, the better revelation, the better understanding of who God is and what he is capable of. Because it's through these promises, Peter says, that we are able to partake of the divine nature, that we are able to have access to God's nature, that we are are able to be like God, as we await the second coming of Christ. So Peter emphasizes this here because this is one of the things that the false teachers and the false prophets don't believe. We'll see in chapter 3 that these false teachers uh, actually deny the second coming of Jesus. Jesus isn't coming back. This is all we got, so let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. They say the, the precious and very great promises of God are not true. But the reason we're able to believe is only because we've been rescued from the corruption that is in the world and comes from our sinful desires. God in Christ has rescued us from that. God in Christ has uh, taken out our, our heart of stone and given us a heart of flesh. He has given us a, a mind to understand. He has given us ears to hear. Which means the reason false teachers and false prophets cannot believe is because they are still blinded by their sinful desires. Their hearts have not been turned to that which is real and true. Because it's that reality in Christ which makes all the difference. And even as, as Christians, we can, sort of, we can sort of stagnate in Christ's likeness uh, if we stop growing in the knowledge of God or forget the precious and great promises of God. And, and we, we probably do that often. I know I do. And that's when I find myself uh, not really growing as much as I want. And it's for this reason that Peter says in verse 5, we are to make every effort to supplement our faith. That we've been, we've been given divine provision from God that gives birth to a divine Look at verses 5 through 7. Peter writes, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. So that's a lot. So let's think through this. The very reason we are able to do this, first and foremost, is because we have escaped the corruption that is in this world, okay? That's the first thing we need to know. Peter's call for human exertion, like always, is preceded always by God's gift of grace. So Remember, we have been given everything we need for life and godliness. This is not up. To us, 100%. So, because of that, we are now able to pursue that which makes us more like Christ, That's what, that which uh, keeps us growing in the knowledge of God. That's what we should be doing. J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, said this. He said, disregard the study of God, and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life blindfolded as it were, with no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds you. This way you can waste your life and lose your soul, which is basically what Peter is warning his readers about. And so once again, to prevent them from making some of the same mistakes as Peter makes, so if you know anything about Peter's uh, uh, past, and if you just read the Gospels, you'll see he made a lot of blunders. He made a lot of mistakes. And so, so, so he's, he's trying to uh, prevent his readers from doing the same thing. And so he instructs them, make every effort. Do whatever you can to grow in godliness, to grow in christ And this, again, is in contrast to what these false teachers have tried to enter into the church and proclaim to Peter's readers. Because they believe that, that one did not need to make effort that once you become a christian they, they they said all was done for you and you could go about living any way that you choose because now you are guaranteed a a seat in heaven because of that but let me just say that this is a distorted message of christian freedom the distorted message of of what paul teaches in romans about what, the freedom that we have in Christ, Because it goes against what the Bible actually teaches. So not only here in verse 5, but also when Jesus himself says things in similar manners uh, in John chapter 14. When Jesus says, abide in me, that's efforts that you have to exert. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. And then James 4.8 puts it plainly, Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. That's a promise. So we should not expect God to be close to us if we are not drawing close to Him. So Peter says, Make every effort to do so. And then he lists how you do this. So we, we supplement our faith, Peter says, meaning that, we, that we use, what we use to supplement our faith is something that should enhance our faith. It should make our faith stronger. So all of these qualities that Peter lists should be feeding our faith, not becoming something we have faith in. So we can have faith in our our virtue, our moral excellence. We can have faith in these different things that Peter lists. We can have faith in our knowledge. I mean, We are a reformed church, so we tend to lean in that direction a little bit more. And we can have faith in that and not, not faith in what God has done for us in Christ. So Peter says, supplement your faith with this. Faith is the root of all of these qualities. And he lists seven that we'll take in turn here. The first one is moral uh, or virtue or moral excellence. Some of your translations might say that. Which means walking in integrity of heart. Walking according to how God has called you. We've already heard it a couple of times already that that Jesus calls us to keep the commandments. So we are walking according to God's commands. So this same word in in the Greek is also used in chapter 1, verse 3, that says God... Who called you to His own glory and his own excellence? So that means that God has called you to something as a Christian that He has created. God has created this excellence that we are to be pursuing, which means that this call upon you is effective, that this call upon you, as you lean into it, is going to bear fruits that he gives you the means in which to accomplish this work. Uh, so, so your moral ex- excellence is attributed to God's grace, not your own work, not your own sweat. So that when we, when we sin, we are quick to repent. Uh, when we sin, we're, we're quick to trust in the grace of God that brought the conviction of sin uh, in the first place and the desire to repent. And you say, the only reason that I'm able to do that is because of God's grace in my life. Otherwise, I wouldn't. I wouldn't care. It wouldn't bother me. So that's the first quality, virtue. The second quality that we supplement our faith with is knowledge. Knowledge being that which we need to live a, moral, uh, a life of moral goodness. This is, this is ongoing, and it's, and it's the fruit of living in God's will. This is a knowledge that, that doesn't puff us up. It's to say, like, I know more about theology. I know more about um, this particular biblical subject than you. And I I have all this knowledge that puffs me up and makes me believe I have some sort of godliness when I really don't. But this is the knowledge that makes us more like Christ. So if you're just gaining knowledge just to gain knowledge and it's not changing your life at all, and people can look around and say, oh, he's, He's really sharp, he knows he knows his Bible, he knows theology well, he can articulate you know the five points of Calvinism so well and he'll argue you down under the table or whatever. Um, that person's probably not a Christian. They might know everything that's good and right and true, but they don't have a heart in which they, a heart of faith that is at its root. So the third quality is self-control, which simply means having control over ourselves and our impulses. Self-control is is something that's so important that it's even recognized by those outside of Christianity as an important virtue. The Greek philosopher Aristotle wrote a lot about self-control. One of his quotes is, "...the unrestrained man does things that he knows to be evil under the influence of passion, whereas the self-restrained man or self-controlled man knowing that his desires are evil, refuses to follow them on principle. That's Aristotle. So if if unbelievers believe this to be true concerning self-control, then even more so should the believer. For one, it's a fruit of the Spirit that Paul talks about in Galatians 5. Which means this is not about human exertion here. This is something that the Spirit is given to you. Self-control is something that you are dependent on the Spirit for because in order to have true self-control, you must be filled with the Spirit. We enter into so much temptation throughout our weeks. I know, just in your jobs, at school, uh, you're going to be inundated with these things as soon as you leave here today or as soon as you wake up tomorrow morning or as soon as you walk through through the doors of your school. You're going to be hit in the face by things that are going to tempt you. And as a Christian, you are called to self-control. And the Spirit is with you in the midst of that. The fourth quality is steadfastness. So this is something Peter's readers were already having to put into practice due to the the suffering that they were experiencing for their faith. The persecution in Peter's time was picking picking up the pace. Christians were dying, violent death. So the word here means to bear insults and injury without bitterness and without complaints. And that's in any situation. Not just, oh, somebody cut me off in traffic. I'll just bear with them today. No, these, Peter is speaking to people who are going to face um, the li- a lion, like an actual lion, by these pagans who throw them in for it, for, 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 uh, for entertainment purposes. This is what Peter is, is building his readers up to. To remain steadfast. To love even those who will throw you into the lion's den. So this is a word that's often used in the scriptures to refer to God. That God, uh, we are called to be steadfast because God is steadfast towards us. We sometimes think it's unfair, um, you know, having conversations with people that we think, oh, well, God has... He has chosen some for salvation and he's, he's not chosen others and so those people are going to you know, die without, apart from the gospel. Um, but, but also you have to look at, look at it from God's perspective that God has been steadfast with those people. That God could not, he, he could have chosen not to allow them to be born. And yet he remains steadfast, he remains patient, he remains long-suffering with those who have yet to receive Christ, and walk in a blasphemous way against him. And you know that to be true, Christian, because he's done that for you. You can look at your life now in the past and go, yeah, God was that way with me. He was steadfast with me. And so we are called as Christians to be steadfast with others. Next, the readers are called to godliness. Godliness. So this refers to a lifestyle that is marked by the gospel in every single way. And it's something to be pursued, even though Peter says in verse 3 that we already possess it. We already, when we become Christians, when God saves us, we become godly. But Peter still says it's something that must be pursued. Believers are called to live out this godliness they've already received and to be pursuing it at the exact same time. The sixth thing Peter calls his readers to is brotherly affection. So if you remember in his first letter Peter says in chapter 1 verse 22 having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And then so he he starts his letter with brotherly love and affection. And then he closes his letter in, verse, in chapter 5, verse 14 of 1 Peter, greet one another with the kiss of love, which was meant to communicate a, a familial relationship amongst believers because a family-like devotion should characterize the Christian community. A family-like devotion should characterize the church. That those Christians who, who sit around you right now are your brothers and sisters in Christ. They are family. So finally, Peter reaches the last quality of his list, and it's, 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 it's the quality above all other qualities, which is love. So if, if faith is, is the root of all of these qualities, uh, then love is the goal and climax of these qualities. It's the goal and climax of the Christian life. So Jonathan Edwards, the great theologian, in his book, The Religious Affections, says that love is the chief of the affections and the fountain of all other affections. Because this is a love that comes from Christ because this type of love that Peter is calling us to is a sacrificial love. And Jesus is the one who demonstrates that type of love to us first. It's the same love that, that drove Jesus to the cross. And it's the same love that we are called to have for each other and for those outside of this church. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, a, a favorite wedding chapter um, of, uh, that likes to be read, uh, read during weddings. But uh, 1 Corinthians 13, Paul is saying, this is what, this is what um, true Christian sacrificial love is to look like. So, if I, or actually what it's not supposed to look like. He said, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, And if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So Paul is saying that if you don't love in this sacrificial way, so if you you think, oh, well, I know all of this good theology. Um, I serve in these particular ways. I'm a good person. Um, I treat people kindly. I show hospitality. But if you are not doing that out of a sacrificial love, that has been demonstrated to you by Jesus first, Paul says it is useless what you're doing. That it is, it is just noise. Paul says in Galatians 5, 6, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision or uncircumcision matters. So Paul is saying here in, in Galatians 5, 6, these outward signs that we find ourselves depending upon and trusting in matter for nothing. He says the only thing that counts is faith the root of all of these actions faith working through love The that is the only thing that matters, Paul says so is your faith working through love if not then it's not a true faith that you possess and these qualities highlight this which means these qualities that Peter just listed should be a continual part of the Christian's life. A continual part. They're not a checklist, so if you wrote them down and put a little box next to it and you got excited about that, let me just correct you very quickly. These are, these are qualities that should be ongoing all the time in the Christian's life. So you may be, may be able to look at them and say, I don't, I don't possess this quality well. It's something that I want to focus in on. And this is what our final point alludes to um, as the way in which a Christian perseveres in this life. And that's through a divine diligence. So we could say the desires, the divine desires that we've been given feed the diligence that we're given. So look at verses 8 through 11. So Peter's referring back to these qualities. For if these qualities are yours... And are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten what he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom Of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So in verse 8, Peter refers back to the quality he, he just spoke of as what will keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful as a believer. So, in other words, these qualities that Peter has just listed are vital to your health as a believer. So it would be like a doctor. You go to to see your doctor, and your doctor says to you very specifically, you need to change your diet and only eat these foods, and here's a list of the foods I want you to eat. You only eat these foods, and I want you to do these certain exercises, and here's a list of the exercises I want you to do. And if you do these things with diligence, you will live a long and happy life. Now, if your doctor told you to do that, I want to go to your doctor, because um, most of the time they just said, here's a prescription. Um, but if, if, if he did tell you that, you would be a fool not to follow their advice. The same is true here. If you want to live an effective, fruitful life as a believer, here is what you must do, Peter says. And we would be fools not to practice them. Because this, this is not unfruitful in kind of a generic sense. Like you say, well, I'm okay with being a nominal Christian. No such thing. But you might think that. I'm okay with being a nominal Christian. I don't have to, I don't have to stand up front and, and speak from a pulpit or, or, or do anything of real value. I can just kind of come on Sundays, um, maybe hang out with a few people, and then just go home and do my own thing. Let me just say that this is not, this is not generic fruit we're talking about. This is not a generic unfruitfulness. This is, Peter says, this is unfruitful, Christian, in knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you will not know Jesus, is what Peter says, if you do not do these things. So Peter is saying to to live out the qualities in verses 5 through 7 is to live in gratitude toward the one who saved you, and this is what bears fruit. When you live in gratitude towards Jesus, that is, what sa- that, that is what allows you to bear fruit. And to not do this is to be fruitless and idle. And this is someone who does not finish well. So in Matthew chapter 21 Jesus has this amazing illustration, uh, real-life a, a real illustration to his disciples when he walks past a fig tree that is not bearing fruit. So from a distance, if you, know the, if you know the story, from a distance it looks like it's a healthy tree. From a distance it looks like this tree will have fruit on it. And as they get closer, the tree has no figs on it. It is fruitless. The tree is not doing what it's supposed to be doing. And so what does Jesus do? He curses it. Matthew twenty-one nineteen. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. It looked okay. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. And then even more directly to what Peter is getting at in this letter, especially as he's uh, starting to, to direct his attention to these false teachers and false prophets, Jesus in Matthew chapter 7 speaks uh, specifically about this particular situation that Peter is in. And I can't help but think that this is, uh, Second Peter is Peter expositing Jesus' words here in Matthew chapter 7. I didn't find that in any of the other commentaries, so you don't, maybe that can be my own thing, but... Um, but just in case that's wrong. But I I feel like Peter spent a lot of time with Jesus. He heard Jesus teach this, and now he's living it out. And so Peter begins to explain it. But this this is what Jesus says in Matthew 7. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? kind of giving a side-eye glance to these false prophets and false teachers he's warning us about. And he's saying to his readers, don't be fruitless like these false teachers. Don't Don't be idle like these false prophets. For the one who is fruitless and ineffective lacks the qualities he's just spoken about. As James tells us, that famous controversial verse of James uh, in James chapter 2 verse 17 faith without works is dead faith true Christian faith without true Christian works is a dead faith it's not a true faith so what Peter likely means is that those who don't practice these qualities that he's just listed give no evidence that their conversion to Christ was actually genuine in the first place So the way in which you confirm that you have been called of God and elected by God is that you are practicing such qualities, that you have this desire to live in this particular way. As one commentator said, God's grace should not lead to moral relaxation, but intense efforts. To say there is no room in the Christian life for spiritual laziness. Verse 8, Peter says, If these qualities are yours and are increasing, which means they are getting stronger, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful. Verse 10, If you practice these qualities, you will never fall. So you have a choice to make. Pursue Christ and grow in Christ or don't. There's no middle ground here. But, Peter says, if you are diligent to confirm your calling and election by practicing these qualities, by living the Christian life, by obeying uh, God's commands, Peter then makes this bold claim at the end of verse 10 about the person who does so. He says, you will never fall. You will never fall. Now, this doesn't mean that you will never sin again. That's not what Peter's saying. But it does mean that the Christian who practices the above qualities is a Christian who will not forsake their God. Why? Because they are cultivating a relationship with Him on a daily basis. They are getting to know Him more and more. So if you call yourself a Christian, and you find yourself overwhelmed by temptation and overwhelmed by a besetting sin, the first place I would check and where I would counsel you to check as a pastor is whether or not you are cultivating a relationship with God. Because that's where it begins. I think a lot of us would say we, we struggle with finding the time. I hear that a lot. We, we have a hard time finding time uh, to get in the Scriptures and to pray each day. But I also find it very interesting that we don't, find sh- uh, t- we don't struggle finding the time to go to work every day, do we? We, we don't find, uh, find it hard to find time to uh, post on social media, do we? We find that time. We don't find it hard to, to go on that vacation. We don't, we don't find it hard to uh, take our kids to that extra extra activity or to watch our team play this weekend. We make time for that. So recognize that that Peter's emphasis right here is not on what God has done. He's he's explained that he understands that that's an ongoing work. He's not like putting that aside and saying like now let's concentrate on this. Peter is saying these things are working together to draw us closer to God and to make us more like Jesus. He is is concentrating on the responsibility of human beings in their relationship with God. Because a relationship with God is not automatic. It's it's, it's an ongoing relationship, uh, one that you're you're constantly uh, cultivating as you would any relationship. I mean, for, for people who are married, you would know if you stopped cultivating a relationship with your spouse, uh, a, a coldness develops, bitterness develops, Divorce enters into that. Well, this should be even more so in our relationship with God. But we want to complain more about not having time or we want to do put other things before that and, and then we slowly divorce ourselves from God. So in verse 11, Peter, closing this this particular part of his letter, gives this wonderful promise to those who persevere, to those who are diligent to, to endure till the end. Peter says this in verse 11, speaking about everything that just came before. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Peter is insisting that one cannot enter the eternal kingdom apart from this. Apart from a life that is fully devoted to Jesus. So this is not a salvation by works text, just in case you were wondering. But rather this is a salvation with works text. Which I think a lot of times we like to drop because that's kind of scary. You're not earning your salvation here. What you are doing is you are you are professing to your salvation through your works. Through the fruit that you bear. Because this is what the Christian life should look like. An intimate ongoing relationship between you and the God of your salvation. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful that you meet us here. In, in the midst of everything that's going on with mics and everything like that, God, we know that you continue to speak to us. It doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to be, be laid out in a smooth way. God, you can still speak through all of that. And so, God, we're thankful that you meet us. And so we pray that you continue to do this work on our hearts. God, help us not to, to leave this place and then say, that was good, and then move on and do our own thing that we always do, Father. I pray that um, for, for believers in this room that we would live a life of faith that gives testimony to what you have done for us in Christ, that our lives would reflect it. God, I pray for those friends in this room who who do not yet know Christ. God, I pray that that... Uh, the gospel message this morning was clear, that they would see their own lives and compare it to what it means to be a Christian and to see how their lives come up really, really short. And so, God, I pray that you would continue to use this gospel message in their life. And so, God, now I pray that you would uh, do this great work in your church, that we would seek to give you glory in everything that we do, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen.